This is the mop up. On June 2nd, 2023, President Biden delivered an address from the Oval Office on the national debt. Here, here is the speech Joe Biden should have delivered. My fellow Americans, one word describes the story of this country. More. More land, more freedom, more people, more wealth, more democracy, more. There's nothing wrong with more if you're able to answer the question, more of what? What do you want more of? This week, my Republican colleagues and I negotiated a debt ceiling bill that preserved Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. We gave more to our military, but we gave less in food stamps. To prevent a default, I agreed to throw as many as 170,000 Americans off food stamps. I didn't enter politics to do that. As president, I am forced to make difficult decisions, and I did something I will regret to my dying breath. I passed a budget on the backs of our nation's neediest. I am ashamed, and I'm not asking for your forgiveness. Instead, I will, moving forward, try to earn your forgiveness. And of course, my Lord and Savior's forgiveness, who is looking down on me right now and saying, Joey, all those years in Catholic school must have taught you nothing. Tonight, I sign this new debt ceiling bill into law. The national debt will not be an issue until January of 2025, after I sign this bill into law. And so I would like to now use that time to begin a conversation about money, how we spend it, and on whom. As president, I am given extraordinary powers. With the press of a button, I can destroy the planet. Because of emergency powers granted to me by Congress, I can lock anyone up and destroy anyone's life. And yet, despite all those powers invested in me, I lack the power to act unilaterally to improve the lives of my fellow citizens. Yes, I can excuse all student loan debt with the stroke of a pen, but that would end up challenged in the courts. There are laws that allow me to help anyone living in an environmental disaster zone by putting them on Medicare no matter what age. But my power to improve your lives is limited by the courts, Congress, the Constitution, and most importantly, the political will of the American people. Now, my job as president is to read the polls. And while I see that this country leans towards a more progressive government, it doesn't lean quite hard enough. And that's where I need your help. I need the political will to move us in the right direction. Medicare for all makes sense, but polling shows the American people are only in favor of Medicare for all once it's been properly explained to them. Most Americans favor increases in Social Security. They favor free tuition at all public universities. They want free universal daycare. They want us to raise the minimum wage to a livable one. Most Americans want the wealthy to pay a greater share 
of the taxes. Most Americans want our government to spend less on police and prisons and more on what makes police and prisons unnecessary. That's what most Americans believe. It says so in the polling, but only in a special kind of polling, a polling where it has been first explained to them. And so, my fellow Americans, I need your help. Until now, in January of 2025, I need all of you to spend one hour each day to focus on your finances and our countries. And what I need you to understand is that your finances are nothing like your government's. I need you to wash clean from your mind the lie you've been fed that the government, like a family, must live within its means. That is a lie. That is a lie spread by the wealthiest people in America who don't want to pay taxes. And because they don't want to pay taxes, they want the government to cut spending. Because if the government cuts spending, it won't ask the rich to pay their fair share of taxes. Now, here's the important thing you need to understand. The wealthiest people in America who control both parties and all the economists and the universities where they teach, they say they want a balanced budget, but they really don't. If America balances its budget or runs a budget surplus, that means our Treasury Department stops issuing bonds. You see, when we run up a debt, like the $33 trillion debt we owe right now, that means we issue $33 trillion in Treasury notes. And rich people, along with institutional investors who invest for rich people, they buy those Treasury notes because those notes pay interest and they're guaranteed by the full faith and credit of the United States government. I am signing this new debt ceiling bill tonight mostly to signal to the world that a United States Treasury note is one of the safest places you can put your money. Thanks to the 14th Amendment, America will never default on our debt. The wealthy want us to be in debt because they want a safe place to put their money so they can collect interest on it. And that, that's the difference between your government and your family. The economy will not grow unless the government has debt. And unlike your family, the government pays its debt by forcing everyone in the country to pay the government each year on April 15th. Government finances are nothing like family finances. Families go bankrupt. The U.S. government does not. Families have no guarantee that money will be coming in. The U.S. government does. So stop thinking the government must live within its means. The government can print the money it doesn't have you and I and everyone else can't. So now that we know the government is completely different from a family, let's talk about our $33 trillion debt. Too much debt is a bad thing. 
Well, where did this debt come from? Seven trillion of it came from Donald Trump's tax cuts for the rich. The rest of the debt, well, that came from George W. Bush's tax cuts for the rich and Ronald Reagan's tax cuts for the rich. We were lied to, and we're still being lied to by Republicans who claim lowering taxes for the wealthy will balance budgets because the wealthy will create so many jobs, our Treasury Department will be overflowing with new income taxes. We gave that a try since Reagan took office, and all those tax cuts did, all Reagan's tax cuts, all George W. Bush's tax cuts, and all Donald Trump's tax cuts did is increase our debt to $33 trillion. The truth is, wealthy people don't create jobs with their money. The truth is, they hoard it, buying treasury notes. Whether you like it or not, the government creates jobs by pouring money into the economy through tax credits, entitlement programs, and government contracts. I can assure you, my fellow Americans, there is not a single so-called self-made billionaire who didn't make his fortune through some sort of government subsidy or government contract. The very same people who demonize government spending are the very same people who benefit from its largesse. Think of all the Republicans who voted against my student loan relief bill while they themselves were the recipients, the beneficiaries of Paycheck Protection Program loans that they never had to pay back. So, my fellow Americans, what is an economy? An economy is a battle among special interests, all fighting for a slice of government spending. It is a battle among special interests fighting over how expensive or how cheap the Federal Reserve will make it to borrow money. And in this glorious struggle, all sorts of special interests fight it out in the public square, making their case for why they deserve the government's largesse. That's how a democracy is supposed to work. But the American democracy, it doesn't work. And our economy doesn't work at least not for everyone. So why is that? Because the one voice not heard in this epic struggle for government largesse is the American citizen. The people who work and vote and pay their taxes don't have anyone speaking for their fair share of the pie. As you all know, I am not a Marxist. But I do not believe in a free market. Free markets don't exist because all markets are manipulated by the rich and the powerful. And the easiest way to manipulate the market is to control the government. Those who control the government control government spending. And so we have now reached a point where the government is in the control of the rich, which means the tax code and government spending is dictated by the rich. How else can you explain this budget deal I'm about to sign, 
where poor people must work for food stamps, but children of billionaires can inherit their first $20 million without paying a single cent in taxes. The conversation about government spending has been contaminated by economists and politicians who are paid mightily by the richest 1% to lie about so-called government handouts. It is a lie that food stamps makes people lazy. It is a lie that welfare programs create a class of people who'd rather sit on the couch than go find work. The rich don't believe that free money destroys the work ethic. Otherwise, they wouldn't spend billions rewriting the tax code to make sure their idiot children never have to work a day in their life. It is obscene for Speaker McCarthy to insist that making people work for food stamps will give them a sense of self-worth. Jobs are no guarantee of self-worth. As a matter of fact, most jobs strip us of our self-worth so we don't ask for a raise. Self-esteem isn't found only in our work or our net worth. Sometimes it is found in our family, an art project or a garden that nobody even knows about. In the end, the economy is what we say it is. Jobs and salaries are based on what we value as a society. I keep a bust of Robert F. Kennedy in my Oval Office as a reminder of what this country is supposed to be. Robert F. Kennedy was a mean son of a bitch. Born to immense wealth, he never had to work a single day in his life. But he worked. He was ambitious, driven, made enemies. And early on in his career, when it came to politics, he was a street fighter. He never had to worry about food, housing, or education. It was all handed to him by his rich father. And that freed him up to fight the world. Early on, he fought the wrong fight, siding with Joseph McCarthy and ruining the lives of American communists. Or when he took on the Teamsters, who at the time were no more corrupt than the companies whose freight they carried. But the fire was in his belly, despite all the inherited wealth. All the handouts he received from his rich father didn't dull his ambition. And then, after his brother, President Kennedy, was assassinated, Bobby Kennedy underwent a profound transformation. In his final years, he learned that all Americans are ambitious, no matter how much or how little they are born with. Because in America, we all want more. We all want the moon. Rich or poor, we all want the moon. Bobby Kennedy realized that free food, free education, a social safety net doesn't make a person dependent. It makes them stronger. In his final years, Bobby Kennedy visited Appalachia, went into the shacks and saw the children, American children with bloated bellies. He marched with Cesar Chavez and the people who pick our food. And he saw that everyone deserves a handout. 
Everyone deserves a warm meal, a home, an education, because it makes them stronger, not weaker, stronger. And by making the least among us stronger, it makes our economy stronger and all of us safer. This country, America, has been taken over by the greedy. It started when Ronald Reagan was inaugurated. As I said at the beginning of my speech, America can be defined by the word more. But we are also being run by rich people who want more money than they need. That is sick because for them, enough is never enough. They have poisoned our government, our environment, our jobs and our lives. There is nothing wrong with wanting more. Our country was built by people wanting more. My ancestors came to America for more. But enough is enough. Let's remember why we have a government. We have a government to protect all of us, not the richest 1%. We pay our taxes to protect everyone especially the least among us, children, the elderly, the unlucky, people born with physical or emotional difficulties. That's the only reason we have a government. The scriptures teach to look after the poor. So why are we punishing them? Between now and the next debate over the debt ceiling in 2025, let's reimagine an American economy and a government that focuses on the bottom. Let's make rock bottom soft enough so all of us can bounce back. Otherwise, what is the point of government or for that matter, any of us being here? That's the speech Joe Biden should have given on June 2nd, 2023. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Paid to piss people off. Go by paid to piss people off. It's the new trilogy written by the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. It's published by Blue Cedar Press. It has the Feldman guarantee. Tonight, we're talking peace. It's a trilogy of three books, and one of the books is entitled Peace, and we're going to talk about the Reverend's protests throughout his career. I should mention to our new listeners, I don't know how it's possible that anyone doesn't know who the Reverend Barry W. Lynn is. But in case you've been in a coma, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, for nearly a quarter of a century, ran Americans United for separation of church and state. Why? Because he's not only an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ, he's a lawyer, and he wants to keep religion out of the public square. Welcome, Reverend Barry W. Lynn, author of Paid to Piss People Off. We have kicked the can down the proverbial road when it comes to the budget ceiling. We will not be discussing the budget ceiling until January of 2025. 
there doesn't seem to be money for anything. People have been thrown off food stamps, cut, 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 except one segment got a, a bump in pay. Who was that? That would be the United States military, not necessarily a payment for the people who are serving, but for the military hardware that is seen by some as essential. And this is where I think last night's debate in the Senate got really mixed up. Rand Paul a few days ago said, you know, it's time for Republicans not to treat the defense budget as a sacred cow. And of course, the other people who have historically, and, and he voted against the deal last night, as did Elizabeth Warren and Bernie, mm -hmm. and I believe Ed Markey from up here in Massachusetts. But for different also, reasons, all for different for reasons. For different reasons. But they did agree, I think we, we can know this, that the, ex, the extra money, the 3% guaranteed increase in defense spending was one of the things that even people like Rand Paul and certainly Bernie and Elizabeth Warren opposed. They thought this was too much. And this is the golden opportunity that was missed. Why didn't Bernie or Elizabeth Warren go to Rand Paul and say, look, um, we're going to vote on these proposals. And they did vote on a couple. But let's let's have a discussion for three hours. We'll do an hour and a half. Republicans that is at least Ron Paul or Rand Paul, why we're against spending so much money on the military. And then we'll come up and we'll talk about why some Democrats oppose it. That would have been an enlightened event. This would have been much more valuable to listen to than the goofy speeches that were being made. This was where uh, Lindsey Graham, who I'm beginning to think is literally the worst person in the entire United States Senate. Or he take out the word Senate. Yeah, in the earth, on yeah. earth, and possibly, although I don't believe there are aliens in outer oh, space, yeah. but but let's say, let's say maybe as bad as anybody on any other planet. Um, he, he voted against it, too, because they didn't have enough. Now, we, we do know that he kind of cut a deal, at least with McConnell and probably with Schumer, too, that in the event that they have an opportunity to come back to the defense budget for some additional appropriations in the fall, they will do so. I would love to see a debate a discussion by people who think that this bloated defense budget must be curtailed from the right and from the left and have it in public because there's no other way it's going to get done. You are never going to see CNN devoting an hour special. Uh, the two that I noticed they're, they're doing now, uh, special on the Bee Gees. You know, I have a huge music collection. It doesn't contain a single album by the Bee Gees. You don't I'm like sure. the Brothers Gibb? I love the Brothers yeah. Gibb. No, I, I, I'm irrele it's irrelevant to okay. me. Do not I, to kind of, I'm not going to argue with you. Yeah, don't um, argue with me about this. This argue. is another argument I can win, so go ahead. I'm not going to – I don't want to embarrass you. No, and go then, ahead. of course, I think the other one they're, they're promoting is has something to do with is this the most dangerous year for mountain climbing on Mount Everest because there are a large number of deaths. That being said – I honestly think CNN ought to get military personnel experts together for one hour 
and just kick around the questions that in a sense we didn't even address last week because then we would get a better bead and it would begin to be part of the discussion that the uh, the non-existent Bernie plus Rand Paul talking about the defense budget that didn't happen last night. It would be a start. Now, and I think it would be as, as interesting, notwithstanding it, you love the Bee Gees, you have all their records, I'm sure. But I think it'd be more valuable for the country and just as entertaining and engaging if they had a debate about military manpower. Who do we see whenever we have military experts on CNN? Who do we see? We see retired members of the military. And who are they working for? Well, they're usually working for some defense contractor now that they've left the military. So it is it is the most incestuous collection of people you can find. And there are other people. I mean, there are civilians and there are people who were in the military who've devoted their entire lives to checking on uh, issues like personnel, uh, weapon systems, what's good. There's even an organization called the Center for Defense Information that has a lot of former people who are very skeptical, former members of the military, very, very skeptical of the claims that the Defense Department has made historically and that they're still making today. Now, you have lived in Washington, D.C. most of your adult life. I have. When you go up against people on CNN, did they reveal that they were lobbyists? And should they? No, I, I think they should. I don't think it's up to them. I think it's up to CNN and MSNBC and anybody else that has them on to say so and so was the former uh, lieutenant colonel in the blah, 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 and uh, now works for Raytheon. Raytheon. So when we see David Pluff, uh, David Axelrod, yep. uh, when we see uh, Gibbs, Joe Lockhart, these are Clinton and Obama press sure. secretaries. They're always identified as the former press secretary for <laughs> Bill Clinton. Right. They don't That's mention right. that they are paid K Street lobbyists for the industry that stands to benefit from the issue they're talking about. That is absolutely correct. And, and they should and, be. And they should. It, it is irresponsible journalism to have these people on virtually every night, as CNN does about what's going on in, uh, in Eastern Europe, and not reveal who in the heck is paying their salaries. And it's before, just irresponsible. Before we go back to defense spending, lobbying, being a lobbyist on K Street, is not just walking the halls of Congress or walking through the, you know, you can, the White House, you can lobby the White House as well. Of course. And the federal agencies. It's also going on television. Of Part of lobbying is. is lobbying the American people. There's no doubt about that. Absolutely. And in fact, that is what people I remember there was a tiny issue with the pharmaceutical companies where I was actually in support of the pharmaceutical companies. And I gave a bunch of speeches before I moved up here. I think they paid me a thousand dollars a speech to talk to Bre at a breakfast about why the regulation of advertising of uh, 
pharmaceuticals uh, should not be heavily restricted. I once I finished the speech. Well, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, get, let's get to the merits of that in a minute. But this is the end of the story. So the a guy from the pharmaceutical industry stands up. It was a good speech, and he said. We would have to pay this man a million dollars a year to get him to work for us, which, of course, I would never do because it was a tiny little thing. So so this is interesting. We yep. at the, in the church of Feldman, which yes. we still haven't. No, uh, you keep promising. I know. But we do do confessions. So you yep. did lobby the American people on behalf of the pharmaceutical industry saying that there's nothing wrong with advertising drugs on national television. Yeah, I mean, they were advertising them already. And it really I wasn't so much uh, talking to the American people. I was just talking to the industry itself to tell them how to frame issues and respect the legitimate, the legitimate corporate First Amendment interests that companies do have, whether we like it or not. Now, looking back, yep. is it possible, with all due respect, and by <laughs> all due respect, I mean... You mean very little, but yes. <laughs> don't you yep. think that one of the reasons we don't have Medicare for all in this country is because the pharmaceutical companies and the health insurance companies, well, this is about the pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, it is. Th that they advertise on the news networks and chill the conversation? Um, I don't think it's the principal reason we don't have Medicare for all. Well, I think well, the principal, well, the principal reason we don't have Medicare for all is that people do not look at Medicare, particularly those of us who are on it, and see that it's giving us everything that we deserve or even close to it. And in fact, if you don't cover eyeglasses and you don't cover hearing aids and you don't cover the things that most people desperately need, there were only one of two things you can do. You can do what they did with hearing aids, which is to make them available over the counter, reducing by 90% what most people are, are paying for it. And, you know, the glasses and it, it, it's, it's insane. So you have we, done hundreds of thousands of television shows. And this is an example, but, you, but as a spokesperson, I've done a lot. you've yes, done a I, lot of debating, yep. and you've answered yep. the tough questions. And this is an example of you deflecting away from <laughs> that was very good. I mean, that, really? Yeah, That's that good. was great. But on yeah, the David we, Feldman show, I put people in the hot seat. That's that's exactly why I like to be here. <laughs> and you're in the um, hot seat, yes. Reverend. And you didn't answer my question. Do you feel personally responsible for for speaking out in favor of advertising pharmaceuticals on television, do you think that played a, a significant role in dumbing down the conversation about the war against Big Pharma? No, I really don't. I just think that the, the advertising of, of drugs and new drugs and drugs that never no one ever heard of and that you're supposed to go and ask your doctor I don't think those those are not bad questions, frankly, to be asking. If you see a new drug on the market, 
um, and you're curious about it, it's good for you to ask that question of your doctor. And the fact that it's a pharmaceutical ad um, from which you learn that the, of the existence of the drug, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. Okay. But someone in the uh, chat, I noticed, made a reference to my wife. Uh, wh- hey, what did she hey, think hey, of that? Hey, hey, hey. hey, hey believe not her that time. That was, it was not uh, Ted Cruz. Oh, okay. Uh, here, but I'm glad you mentioned this because I wanted to ask you a question. Me? If there, yes, I did. I wanted to ask you a question. I wanted to put you in a seat. Let us say that last night you were in the United States Senate. You had been appointed to be a senator from Arizona because I don't know who that really is. Um, and you had an opportunity to make a 10% cut across the board, including a 10% cut in the defense budget. Would you have voted for that or not voted for that? I don't know enough about this. So you're saying, would I vote for a 10% cut in the defense budget? Yes. Are my constituents morons who would think I'm weak on defense if I did that? It doesn't matter. You're you're only there temporarily. Oh, temporarily? Yeah, you've just been appointed. That was the predicate. You were appointed. You're not running for anything. And I'm not not going to run for real. You're not going to run for re-election. I'm just going in. You're just going in. They give you a 10% cut in the defense budget. Do you do it? Do I? How much money am I worth? And am I going to need work on K Street <laughs> after I leave? Yes, you're, you're as good as I am about defle- deflecting well, I just want to know who I am. Do no. I need money? Do I need no, to do you, favors? You don't need any more money than you make from the, the, the wealth that you're accumulating from doing this program. And, and you will acquire when you set up the Church of Feldman. Okay, but I'm a United right States one. senator. Yes, it's 10% cut. And, and I'm Lindsey only going to be there for a six percent increase. He only got three percent. He voted against the bill. Would you have voted for a proposal to cut 10 yes. percent out of the defense? budget? Yes. Good. Yes. Question. Why doesn't every progressive at least do that? At least cut 10 well, percent out of the bloated defense budget. Let me answer your question, Reverend, right. with a question. Okay. In order for Finland to be welcomed into the warm embrace of NATO, it must spend, I think, two to three percent of its GDP on weapons. Yeah. So I've always been told you can't throw money at a problem. That's what conservatives say, that that you you should spend money in a, a conservative fashion. But when it comes to defense, you have to throw 2% of your GDP every year at the military-industrial complex. You have to spend it. It's like, you know, in a corporation, you're given an an expense account and you go on a trip and you got to spend it. Yep. Even if it means, you know, (laughs) you're going to blow it on strippers. Or the strippers are going to blow it on you. But uh, it's so flagrant, isn't it? It's just of course it's flagrant. Of course, it's ridiculous. How do we get in on this? 
<laughs> How do we you, get to a well, guaranteed you, skim of a GDP? Yeah. You, you don't unless you're unless you form the Church of Feldman, then you'll be able to do that. Then you'll be, even be able to get the next time we have a uh, a pandemic, you'll be able to get loans that will never have to be repaid for running the Church of Feldman and having all of your friends, children and associates. So let me ask you uh, a question yeah. about peace, your book, peace, yeah. Yeah. which is part of paid to piss people off. Right. Years ago, I used to smoke dope. Okay. And I, when I combined the dope with mm. the right amount of scotch, I would see things clearly. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I, when, I, when we talk about defense spending and the greed of the military-industrial complex, it reminds me of this crystalline understanding of the immorality of our defense industry. It, just, it reminds me when I used to smoke dope and drink, sure. and you go, oh, my God, I, I get it. I see it. And now it's just so out in the open and clear that this is about, like Ukraine is about profits. It's the defense, it's not about keeping, they just lie. Do they know they're lying? Or are, are humans good at deceiving themselves before they deceive others? Oh, I think they know full well that they're lying. But what is the opportunity for somebody to say, oh, uh, Senator Schmo or uh, uh, you, former the lieutenant colonel, so-and-so. Where, where does any of that confrontation come? Look, I, I, I moved to Massachusetts six months ago. I wrote an email to uh, Elizabeth Warren about an issue about a month ago. I have yet to have any kind of response whatsoever. These are supposed to be the people most tuned in to what the public is interested in. These are the people who are supposed to be progressives and listening to people like myself. And I, I explained a little about my background and I still didn't hear one word. What about, what? why don't you have a, a meeting in your local town? You know how few members of Congress ever have a meeting in their hometown that's genuinely open. They have these phony things like uh, Sean Hannity did the other night with Donald Trump. You know, you, you have a hand-picked bunch of people. They show up. Mm -hmm. you, you act like you're asking them hard questions, and then you don't ask them any hard questions. And Hannity last night started his questioning of Trump by asking him about the fall that Joe Biden took right, I, when he stumbled over a, a, a suitcase or something on the stage. Right. I watched it, I watched the first 10 minutes of that and I got scared. I, I thought, oh, wait a second. Trump, really? We got to go back to him again? <laughs> like we're going to relive this all over again? He, you know, he was really he's just a great liar. Yes, he is. And um 
One of the things I, I can see we're almost out of time, but one of the things I want to know is why do I get 10 emails every day from groups associated or claim to be associated with the Democratic Party uh, who are telling me that we're not being tough enough on Donald Trump, that we're somehow not, uh, uh, Mayor Garland's not moving quickly enough, the Georgia Attorney General not moving quick enough, write a letter, demand this, send us money. If we don't end up, those of us who inclined are inclined to support Democrats, if we don't get a rerun with somebody, even Biden, against Donald Trump, we will lose the presidential race. And we'll lose it because the people that are running are just as bad as he is. Asa Hutchinson, for example, who um, may be foreclosed from even getting in the early debates because he's doing so poorly, but he is a horrible human being. Nikki Haley, a horrible human being. Ron DeSatanist, a more arguably a worse person than Donald Trump. There is not one person running for the Republican nomination who thinks about any issues other than how to hurt people, how to kick people off of welfare, how to penalize them for doing things or being different than they are, and then trying to convince us that we really ought to worry more about drag shows at a library than we ought to worry about people starving to death at the border. Why are there not more reverends like you and rabbis? I, I, I wish I could answer that. And I, I, I've told this story before. I mean, I knew a woman who um, had been very popular uh, talk show guest when she ran SECUS, the Sex Information Education Council of the United States, when she became a Unitarian minister. She was virtually never seen again. Have you I ever, you know, I, I've started telling people they're going to burn in hell. Yeah. Because uh, I think it's powerful. Have you ever been tempted to to say, I am a reverend and I can assure you <laughs> I've read the scriptures. Yeah. You're going to burn in hell. <laughs> yeah, I've never been tempted to say that. But, uh, I, well, with, there are members of Congress uh, th that I I did almost say that to them directly but have you, at hearings. Yes. I, I don't mean to. I'm being serious. And I, don't, I hope yeah, I'm not no, being, I know you are. So I don't mean to get too personal with you because we joke around. Sure. But if you I mean, Fugelsang is the best person to talk about this. With. Sure. Uh, if you go over the Bible and the teachings of Christ, these people, am I wrong that? These people are Satan. I mean, to, to, isn't it isn't it really immoral to to hijack the words of Jesus and twist them and have him saying things that are the complete opposite? Isn't that what Satan would no, do? That is exactly what Satan would do. And perhaps Satan, if you really you know believe there's a Satan, uh, maybe he's operating because he sure as hell is doing a good job so, of making people who allege themselves to be Christians, to do every non-Christian thing humanly possible. Yes. And, and so have you ever been tempted to say to these people, you are Satan? Because but that is what Satan would do. This is what it is. It is yeah. It's just it's just not the way I talk. It, but, you know uh, what? You have too much faith. I in think what? I, I have found that 
when I lash out at people, it's because I lack faith. When I have faith, I'm calm. And if you, like, if you have faith, Jerry Falwell's son will reveal himself as the sexual pervert he is. And, and, right. and, and so in time, if you have faith, these people will reveal who they truly are. Unfortunately, along the way, they destroy lives. Uh, you know, I, I can't Absolutely. wait decades for Franklin Graham to be exposed. Have you ever thought, I'm going to do what they do? I'm going to fight fire and brimstone with fire and brimstone, which is the name of your next book, Fighting Fire and Brimstone with, with Fire and Brimstone. Fire and Brimstone. Yeah, I'll be writing that book. Um, this... The, the the problem is the language. You know, I it was once asked um, by a member of the United States House of Representatives why I spent so much trying to time trying to preserve the First Amendment instead of trying to bring G people to Jesus and not and avoid them going to hell. And he put it that bluntly. And I said, you know, Congressman. I have a feeling your idea of hell and mine is radically different. And he said, well, no, no, no. And then he um, he said, no, I meant, well, and he was on a committee that, that had two Jewish members and one Buddhist member at the time on the Judiciary Committee. And he was, um, he thought nothing of basically saying to his colleagues, um, because they're not Christians, his kind of Christian, they're going to hell. And I finally said, you know, this is not even an appropriate conversation to have in a, in a hearing room in the United States Congress. When I went to him afterwards and said, you know, you raised some interesting points. I, you know, I'd like to talk to you about them privately. And he said, um, uh, to his staff guy, uh, set up a breakfast uh, for Barry and I. Right. And of course, uh, that was something like four and a half years ago, and I have a feeling he ain't never going to have it. Right. I did have a I did have a, an interesting conversation one day though with a, a then very powerful uh, member of the House from Oklahoma, a Republican. We had had a debate out in his home home state and. We were catching the same plane back and he didn't he had one good idea, which he explained to me, which was that any time legislation is passed or proposed, it should explain very specifically what it's changing. In other words, what is altering in current law? And he said that in Oklahoma, they had, they had passed such a statute. And he said it was a good thing for the federal government. And I said, that's a good idea. I think it was because I said that was a good idea. He said, do you want to hear a joke? I said, sure. And he said, uh, this was right before the Y2K crisis. I he, said, that. he says, he says, um, well, the Republican conference got together, Barry, and uh, we decided what to do about Y2K. And I said, oh, what did you decide to do? He said, well, we all hope that we, in fact, flip back to 1900 because we'll all like it better that yeah. way. See, um, one good idea, one good joke. That's all you can expect from right. the run of the mill. We have a, a hand raised from Jay. Let's see. Uh, 
what Jay has to say. Jay, you have a question for, you have to unmute. Jay, ask to unmute. Okay, this, I, this reminds me of the way we did the show before, where uh, it's uh, people raise their hand. <laughs> you call, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't. But I tried to. <laughs> Uh, the Reverend ba okay. the Reverend Barry W. Lynn is author of Paid to Piss People Off. It's published by Blue Cedar Press. Go buy it. Where do you want people to purchase it? I think the easiest thing is to go to BarryWLynn.com. There is a, a, a big banner about how to order it. It's the cheapest way to order it, and it avoids having to do business with uh, certain satanic publishing empires that will go about? yeah i'm not talking about them i'm talking about, talking about amazon? <laughs> what did amazon yeah i don't know the the, the 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 book is um Pain. seems to be moving up on amazon and i don't fully know why and I don't, because i'd like them to see an accounting of that because i'm i've yet to see any uh any revenue from Amazon. You get it in due time. <laughs> I need something from you first. I need your soul. Um, I need your soul, Reverend. Before you go. Yes. We were debating the draft last year. And last week. La did I say yeah. last year? Yeah, you said last year. Okay. I hate to correct you, but I had to. And I, as you know, believe we should have a draft. Yep. You disagree. I do. And you but wanted once to, again, and you wanted to relitigate before you left. You said <laughs> how much? Like what how many people should serve in the military? No, I, I, here's the question. Whether you get them the bad way, which of course is to bring back the draft and then the government gets to tell you to kill people you don't even know, or you can stick with the all-volunteer force with all of its problems. But before you even reach that question, you need two other questions to be answered. How many people do we really need in the United States military? If you ask people how many people are serving throughout the military today, I don't think you get one in 10 people who could give you anything close to the right number and then when you say oh well, what about the reserves and even a lot of people in the military when well, they get out and they don't realize that they usually have another six-year obligation in something called the individual ready reserve but then once you establish what the numbers are then you have to say well what in the hell are these people supposed to do and that's those are the two questions. How many people do we need and what in the world are they supposed to do? Those are the predicates to having a sensible conversation, I think, about whether and how you acquire people in the first place. All right. Okay. You win. I lose. Okay. Yeah. okay. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn is the author of Paid to Piss People Off. It's published by Blue Cedar Press. It has the Feldman Guarantee, which means if you buy the book and it doesn't change your life, I will reimburse you. It's just that simple. Go buy Paid to Piss People Off. I'll see you next week. All right. I hope. Stay out of trouble. Yeah.
Uh, only good trouble. Before, and I'm like, well, you know, I'll, I, I can't do next Friday, but I'll, well, we'll do Thursday. Thursday. We'll do Thursday. Do you know? Sounds good. Do you know, Reverend? Do you know Paul Provenza? Uh, I, I think I've seen his movie, The Aristocrats. Yes. Well, let's uh, stay with me here for one well, second. Well, I actually, I, I, I have to do another show. Oh. I'm not going to mention it, but I have to get on that. But. Norm, I, I love the movie, by the way. You love, so, the, you love the Aristocrats? Yes, yes, I did. Okay. I did. Thank you, All right. Reverend Barry W. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Only stay in good trouble. Oh, yes. Stay, stay uh, yeah. in. Is, stay it, okay. Yeah, thank I've got to be you and me. Yeah, I know. Okay. I know. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. See you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Paul Provenza joins us. He is a brilliant comedian. You know him from hosting The Green Room on Showtime, which people still walk up to me and rave about. He is a producer and a director of The Aristocrats, the the movie The Aristocrats. And Paul, I said, let's just go old school and talk about The Aristocrats because... We haven't talked about it in a while, and the country has changed. So yeah, I don't know if it would. Uh, I don't know how it would fly now. That's for sure. It was challenging when it actually did come out, but I'm not sure if anybody would go. Oh yeah, everybody talking about fucking their kids. Let's go with this. <laughs> I'm not convinced. Well, let me if let I me. Think just a moment in time where we squeak through there. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Yes, sir. You uh, helped out on the Mies Commission, right? You got you to gotta unmute there, sir. Hang on. Unmute, unmute, unmute. You got to unmute. Muting. Yes, I followed them around the country when I was working for the ACLU to harass them at every point. And James Dobson, who was on that commission and, of course, has become now uh, a bona fide god of the religious right, um, came up to me in a restaurant about a year afterwards and said, uh, you know, Barry, I hate everything you stand for, but I will tell you this. You destroyed every good thing we tried to do, to which I said, thank you. Okay, so what would Jesus say about the movie The Aristocrats? <laughs> you 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 are a real but, reverend. You're you're yes, I know. Uh, I think he would have. Uh, I, I I think he would have gotten a laugh out of it. Can I just say that uh, uh, at the time <laughs> that the movie came out, uh, we were quite shocked to see how many of those you know websites and organizations that are like will do movie reviews to make sure. sure. Know, nothing uh, offensive to Christian children or whatever. I don't know what it is. It's a bunch of those. But um, more than more than a few of them were surprisingly like this is a real celebration of, you know, creativity. And I didn't realize then that it was because, you know, maybe they would get, you know, they felt off the hook a little bit. But um <laughs> I want to say something about the Mies Commission, though. Wasn't it Edwin Mies who gave speeches in front of a statue? I believe it was in the, in 
I guess somewhere in the Justice Department. I yeah. Don't know. And um, they're Greek uh, neoclassical. Goddess of Justice. Yep. Yeah. And he that, covered the. It was Ashcroft, uh, actually. It was no, Ashcroft. No, no, no. Ashcroft thought about covering it. Meese thought about covering it, but he didn't. And when I asked his press guy, why didn't you cover that? Because it was not only on the front page of every newspaper in the country, but it's also on the cover of book two of my trilogy paid to piss people off and and ed meese uh was he took this thing for years afterwards i would show the picture at speeches and i'd say this is the famous two boobs photograph <laughs> not proud of that necessarily but it always got a laugh and uh and, and meese was I used to run into him occasionally. We believe it or not, I had a mutual friend, and uh, I was at a, a couple of Christmas parties with Meese. And when he lost that lawsuit at his beloved Virginia Military uh, Institute, and was required to bring women in to the the facility, I ran into him at MSNBC. I said, hey, he had a big loss today, Ed. And he said, oh, don't worry. We'll, we'll get over it. We'll just take the whole thing private, which, of course, never happened. Kurt Vonnegut, Betty Friedan, and I did a, a press conference in New York City about the Mies Commission when it was nearly finished and it was um it was a great event and speaking you know, of which a, yeah, go I ahead did a, i just did a benefit performance here at my house for uh for the kurt vonnegut museum yeah there for their current project which is to send as many copies of kurt's band books to as many kids in the country that want them <laughs> uh so I thought that was that was worth getting behind no, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm actually I think I'm doing the keynote at their September fundraiser when oh, cool. they and uh, and I, so I know those folks pretty well. And it's a wonderful operation. And I, I gave this speech and uh, Kurt says to me afterwards, hey, you're a good writer. And I looked at him. I said, thank you. Maybe I'm just a good storyteller. <laughs> Maybe that's the same thing. Great. But I don't know. The did, Reverend, you see the uh, did you see the Kurt Vonnegut documentary? That, yes, uh, I did. What did you think of that? Uh, I, I was I had kind of mixed feelings about it, really. I, I just it didn't grab me in the same way. I'd seen a lot of documentaries about other people I had respect for at the time, including the the second one about Leonard Cohen. And I just, I don't know, I thought they did better. But my only experience with Kurt was that one press conference. I, I'd never, never met him before or after. But well, have fun discussing Aristocrats. And I don't, I don't want anyone to think that this is the Aristocats. No, no. Well, that's the, controversial. The Billy Joel. When, when, the Billy Joel vehicle. Yeah. But, do you know, when Disney decided they were going to continue in release with a lot of their early films, with the exception of Song of the South, they put warning messages in front of them, uh, including in the Aristocats. What you know? Yeah. Who knows? 
Anyway. What was that warning about? This, if you have allergies, don't watch this movie. Yeah, I what? think it, 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 I, if you can't spell Aristocats properly, you may end up on, you, watching on, on the wrong a, documentary. A, a wrong film. Yeah, well, anyway, so that's, um, but I do, sorry, I do have to go, but I. Uh, thank you, Reverend Barry W. Thank you. Thank Certainly. You. Terrific. Thank that you. That was great. That was Paul, great. nice to talk with you, too. Paul Provenza. You, Thanks. Paul Provenza, it is great to see you. And I, you said to me, what do you want to talk about? And I said, I want to talk about the aristocrats. That was so long ago. But, but. I, but I, I, you said, what do you want to talk about? And I thought, do things hold up with time? A lot of a lot like I found the sting doesn't hold up. It, it just. Why, why do you say that? I, I, I watch movies that I thought I was going to. You know, love again, and I go. Oh, the, the sting d- doesn't hold up. Uh, Is that because you already know the story, so there's no surprise elements for you? Yeah, in that movie? Triple D Ghetto Blasters. Uh, <laughs> you know, it just doesn't. Uh, does the aristocrats hold up? Now, here's my. Here's what I suspect. Okay, I, I think before you tell me what you suspect. I think this is a very individual thing. I don't think it has anything to do with culture or society or media. I think for individuals, that's that can be answered. Well, you you just interviewed John Cleese for your podcast, I believe. And he said he said he is not going to change life of Brian, that they're not going to go back and clean it up. And. I suspect that the aristocrats is funnier today than it was when it first came out. So when did the aristocrats? It came out after 9-11. It, it was because of 9-11. It came out, it came out in 2005. And uh, um, it was uh, it was really shocking how well received it was. I mean, we really expected, like, you know, the the Christian moralists to make a big fuss and blah, blah, blah. And of course, there were one or two uh, theater chains that uh, that made a big fuss about saying that they weren't going to show the movie uh, and stuff like that. But basically, really, it, it, it didn't really bother too many people. I mean, I thought for sure we would have heard from, you know, the far right or some you know religious organization whatever but most of them really got on board and, and i was as i said i was really surprised there were a few christian websites that actually gave it really good reviews saying you know this is this is a way of bringing light to darkness and all of that kind of stuff and i was really surprised and frankly a little disappointed was there a rendition of the joke that you could not show did somebody do a version of it that was just so profane you said <laughs> I can't I cannot do this. No, no, there were nobody crossed a line. There were no. Well, there were no lines. I mean, if you what could possibly have been, you know, more vulgar than Bob Saget or Gilbert Gottfried? I mean, I can't even imagine what it would be that got cut out that that remained, you know. Right. But uh, uh, there were a couple of versions that that ended up on the DVD just because we couldn't fit them in the movie or one of my favorites. I, I know he's he's been canceled now, but a great American, Ron Jeremy. Yes, did it. I, I I met Ron Jeremy bef- because of you. Uh, what, was it at the green room? Because he used yeah, to come to the- he used to come. His smell preceded him. The, 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 the was, I'm sorry. 
he had narcolepsy and he would fall asleep in the middle of the show. He had narcolepsy? Yeah. So yeah. he really did sleep with everybody. <laughs> I didn't know he had narcolepsy. <laughs> but he did it as a he did it as a uh, as as a kind of sing song kind of poem, and it was actually really quite lovely. Right. And I wanted it in because it's like this is the opposite of what you'd expect from uh, from Ron Jeremy. Uh, but um, because it was like I couldn't cut into it, I couldn't. Cut, it was such of a piece that, I, that it got. A lot of people say that he's too long. <laughs> that has always been his problem. And what is his trivia? Because I revealed his big trivia at the green room. Aside from being in prison now for rape. But who, who did he go to high school with? Oh, that's right. He went to high school with uh, um, um, George Tenet, the head of the CIA. And that was that was a little nugget I pulled out at the green room when I felt very proud of myself. OK, so for those of you who haven't seen The Aristocrats, where, where could you watch it? Oh, it's all over the place. Illegal. Just, okay. it's all, I just just watch it wherever you can. It's and, on YouTube. And the genius of the aristocrats is it is 20. I don't know how many comedians, the best comedians, George Carlin, Saget, Gilbert Gottfried, Billy Crystal. There's 100 comedians in 100 comedians all telling the same joke. Right. Which is a genius idea because you could never get that green lit by a studio. No way. In fact, when we when we forget that it's a filthy it. joke, the idea that you're going to have 100 comedians all telling the same joke, people go, that's impossible. Yeah, well, that was kind of the idea behind it was, you know, Penn and I always talked about, you know, at the time we had talked about it for a long time. We went back and forth about how funny would it be if we just had a string of people doing this joke. Uh, and we thought when we started shooting it, we thought, well, you know, we'll probably get a video that we could send to our friends. You know, uh, it would just be funny for us. But we kept going and kept getting more and more people. And then once Carlin signed on board, everybody was like, he's doing it. I guess I'll do it. Although Paul Reiser was hilarious after the first screening. He was like, if I had any idea that this would actually see the light again. <laughs> <laughs> who, who was the most innocent party that got violated by it? Drew Carey? Who, who had the cleanest act that people were shocked that they could go in that direction. I don't. I don't. Well, I don't know. Uh, I don't know who had the. I don't think anybody in there was real squeaky clean. Although no. Rita Rudner. <laughs> Rita Rudner. That. Yeah, that and how? Vi I mean, Rita Rudner, a brilliant comedy writer. She's squeaky clean. You go see her. She's like Seinfeld. Did Seinfeld do it? Her mind is fucking great. Her jokes are so strong. She's a very underrated comedian. Of course. Her, her joke writing is superb. Did Seinfeld do it? <sighs> he, no, he was going to do it, but then he felt like it was it was not too long when we started shooting. It was not too long after Comedian had come out. Right. And he felt like, well, that's my comedy documentary. I don't want to do any, any of this. Um, so he didn't do it. But uh, who, I think that who, who said no? By the way, can I just say that Jerry Seinfeld was not always a squeaky clean comic. Really? No. Um, he decided very early on, and I believe it was a business decision. But when he first started, he used to use the word fuck as a as a, uh, a rhythm stop. 
like, who the fuck are these people? Uh, you know, really? Fuck all the time. And in fact, it was actually watching him that made me go. I really, you know, you, you don't have to be a, a you know a, a dirty comic to talk the way you and your friends actually talk. You know, um, in fact, there was one bit that he used to do that I loved. You remember that commercial for like fantastic spray cleaner yeah. or something where, you know, be across the stove, it would say grease and it would say grime on the refrigerator, you know, and he would say, I know what grease is. I know what grime is. Grime is a very, very uh, helpful stain because it spells itself out right in front of you. And he goes, I'm glad not all stains do that because it would be really tough to be at the laundromat and pull your sheets out and it just says, come right across. <laughs> That's Jerry Seinfeld. That was a Jerry Seinfeld joke, yes. Dirty Jerry. Dirty <laughs> Jerry. But even when he was dirty, he was adorable, you know? Right. And he made pretty cute, you know? Could he have uh, been more interesting as a human being and a comedian? Had he gone a little bluer, but not said dirty? Like, I don't know, you know, I, you can think of it. Yeah, yeah. Whenever I think about Jerry, I always have to think about the fact that he is a machine. He is a technician. Right. His joke writing is architectural and, and, and it's so, uh, you know, well engineered and designed that I kind of feel like, you know, by him making the decision to not do anything blue, or not use any curse words or anything. It kind of was one of those limitations that make, you know, art that for him right. was a limitation that made him go in other directions. And, and Jesus, when he, whatever road he goes down, I always think to myself, imagine if Jerry was political, could you imagine the kind of material he would be generating? Right. And like powerful it might be, you yeah. know, but. And yeah, right wing cool. and right wing perhaps. Uh, you know, I agree. I agree with him on the F word. I think getting rid of the F word is a good idea. But, you know, Bob, Sh Bob Schimmel was absolutely filthy. But he was clean. He could talk about sex and being violated sexually. But the language he used was you know, is that a yeah, fair? He didn't curse much, but he did talk about, you know, he did talk about dicks and things. And, yeah. You know, I remember one bit he used to do about how he felt all these pains in his stomach. And he was like, this is really bad. He went to the emergency room and the doctor pressed right over here. And it cost him $800 to fart in the emergency room. Yeah, I, I remember that. Or I said to my wife, let's try anal sex. She whipped out a vibrator and said, you first. You first, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What, what is this big dick cream? Because it can't work. Wouldn't your hand be huge? <laughs> right, right. Schimmel was just, we lost. One of the all-time greats. One of the all-time greats. Yeah. Out there. What? David talks about Schimmel as being like one of his favorite comedians. That, that I, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. I said, if there's any David Tell fans out there, you'd be interested to know, you should check out Bob Schimmel because Schimmel was like, a tells like you know the lighthouse it's like that. Right. I want to get yeah. So let me ask you about instincts of, of comedians because you are besides being an incredibly funny comedian, you've studied other comedians. You're fascinated by comedy, and I was talking to somebody about uh, Robert Smigel, and no, well, he's one of the funniest people on the planet. He is one of the funniest. I think 
I mean, I mean, I, anyway, I'm but I, nobody for some reason he gets I get he gets me right. By so, the way, I begged Smigel to to have triumph in the aristocrats and he wouldn't do it. Really? Yeah, he wouldn't do it. He was really, really shy about it. He was really like, I don't feel like I can't be in a be with Robin Williams and George Carlin. Right. And all this. Right. Fuck you. Are you kidding me? Right. <laughs> So here's the question I, I wanted to ask you about Smigel and comedy. The thing about Robert is he will go for it. He within reason. But in ter- if, if there's a, a vein to be opened and a wound, a comedic wound to just dig your fist in and start pulling out the entrails, he will just and splatter it all over the wall and make you that that to me is what triumph is for yes that's for him to be able to do that right because i I think as a person he's not that kind of person he's a very quiet reserved kind of cat right uh and with triumph uh, triumph of all the things that he's done which are brilliant triumph to me is the most vicious and it's right absolutely hilarious i mean he, he just can say anything he wants as a puppet, which I guess is sort of the history of uh, court jesters. You know, you can say anything you want if you got a silly hat on. Do what is the price a comedian? Because you know everybody, a comedian pays for digging your whole hand in the wound and just pulling everything out and rubbing it on the audience's face. What is the price the comedian pays for that? Uh, you you uh, segregate your audience is what happens. You just you, you shrink down to your crowd, which is really what every comedian should be doing. And here's the funny thing. You were talking about Seinfeld before Seinfeld. While I do believe that it was a business decision for him to go clean, um, it's still very much like who he is. I mean, in personal he'll curse, and, you know, he'll scream and yell, fuck you at a Yankees game or something. But um, uh, and, you know, in person, he's not, you know, I mean, he, he uses that kind of language, but he's basically a very, very, you know, um, uh, inward kind of kind of guy. I right. mean, the inward's the wrong word. I'm just saying that he's not a big, brassy, you know, over the top kind of guy. He's very subtle and nuanced. And, and so his material is that. And it just so happens that by him being true to himself, he can have the biggest audience possible. Right. But not everybody can do that when they're being true to themselves. Right. You know, Bill Burr is a great example. There are people who either love or hate Bill Burr. Nobody's just on the fence about Bill Burr. I happen to think he's like one of the best ever. I right. mean, I, I, he, he is in a direct line. I think it goes, you know, George Carlin right to Bill Burr. I think he encapsula- encapsulates everything that we loved about about Carlin, but not everybody loves Bill Burr because he's not, you know, he's, he's not generic and he's got points of view and some of his points of view are really challenging. And that's what I love about him. And what I loved about Patrice O'Neill is they would say some outrageous things, but then they would break down why they came to those conclusions. And you go, huh, I gotta give that a little more thought. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think Burr is amazing. I agree with you. Uh, before you go, and we we have eight more minutes with you, and then we we have to. I want to talk about. I got I got something coming up on July. On, I'm sorry, on June seventeenth. On June seventeenth, if you go to Nowhere Comedy, 
NowhereComedy.com. You can buy tickets for June for June 17th. I'm doing a green room, a live green room at my home. I've been doing shows here at my house. I made a venue in my backyard. It's really cool. Uh, and on June 17th, uh, you can only come by invitation. So you have to be in, in town here in L.A. and know me personally. Uh, but everybody else can join in on a live stream on Nowhere Comedy. And it's going to be uh, short stand-up sets. And then a green room conversation with Doug Stanhope. Wow. And Andrist. Oh, well, start again. I'm sorry. When you said Doug Stanhope, I just, who, who else? Doug Stanhope, Andy Andrist, Christine Levine, and Annie Letterman. And Annie Henry Letterman. What? And who else? Yeah. Uh, Henry Phillips is going to do some, some songs. For oh, us. my God. Uh, so that's a, like a, a killer, no holes barred. What night of the week is that? That is, I think, a Saturday. And we um, we're going to do a live green room afterwards. And we're going to talk about all of those acts, with the exception of Henry Phillips. All the stand ups <clears throat> have been uh, sexually abused as children and they do material about it. And we're going to talk about that, about doing material that's that raw and that challenging and that polarizing uh, and just, you know, what it's like to turn that kind of horrible shit into comedy that makes people laugh. Okay, so uh, let's let, hang on because I want to go to this, but I'm in New York. So how do I attend? It'll be 4 p.m. Go to NowhereComedy.com. 4 p.m. New York time? Correct. It's going to be 7, 7.30 p.m. L.A. time. No, so no, 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 no. It's the other way around. Uh, 10.30 New York time. You're right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No wonder I no wonder I never draw. <laughs> it's not that I it's not that I suck as a comic. I just you, you, you show up too early. And so so how do we do how do I get to this? How do I do this? OK, first of all, you can go to my Twitter feed and there's there's tweets with links in it there. And I'm mm -hmm. at Paul Fenza. or you can go to NowhereComedy.com and go to and go to their schedule. It's July 17th, uh, Green Room Live. And you're doing shows and you're, you're back here. You are doing uh, the Danny Thomas show. Didn't Danny <laughs> Thomas like live above the club that he performed in every night? Or, is that, is that, I didn't remember that. I, yeah, I, and I, Ricky Ricardo, you know, would go. Well, he'd go, he'd he'd go, go to the go Tropicana. The Tropicana. Right? The Tropicana. He didn't have to. So you're literally performing in your backyard. Yeah, we've done uh, most of them are benefits. Uh, like I was telling uh, the good Reverend, uh, we did a benefit for the. Uh, uh, Kurt Vonnegut Museum. We just did a benefit, which was all musical comedy. And it was so great. Uh, it was there were like eight or ten acts on the bill, and it flowed like crazy, and everybody was brilliant. And that was a benefit for Liz Winstead's Abortion Access Front. Right. Right. Uh, Lady Justice. Done, uh, well, Lady Parts Justice Lady, yeah. won't create Abortion Access Front. Right. Um, so, uh, um, so we like to do them just mostly as just as benefits. Um, so, although I, have, I, we, I did another green room uh, last year, I did a green room in my backyard, which was uh, a bunch of comedians who were uh, they talked a lot about uh, trans issues, mm -hmm. and one of one of them, uh, this guy Max Beasley, who is hilarious, um, he had some material about that, was just kind of like beginning his journey in in actually 
transitioning, whatever. And I had my friend, Dr. Marty Klein, who's a sex therapist, uh, come and we all had a conversation about all that stuff. It was really cool. It's really fun. And, uh, and I do it right in my backyard and we feed everybody. And, it's and, open and is it done? Is it done on zoom? Is, is that how it's done? Nowhere comedy, Nowhere comedy goes through zoom. Fantastic. And you, play, and you buy a ticket and, um, I think it's like 10 bucks or something. It's nothing. But, um, I think the Doug Stanhope, Andy Andrus, Christine Levine, Annie Letterman, Henry Phillips show will be well worth it. Well, if you, they're talking about being molested as children. Yeah, because Andy, because uh, here's the here's the genesis of this particular night. I've been working for a hundred years now on a documentary uh, about Andy Andrist, who, with the help of Doug Stanhope, actually tracked down and confronted his childhood molester. Yes, I remember and, that. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that, that that whole thing is all about, you know, right. that comment, what, you know, this guy's life having, you know, deal with this shit and then having dealing with it in comedy and how it's affected his life. And it's also really about friends and, you know, helping each other out and stuff. But basically it's a, you know, people don't talk about this stuff and, and so much of it could be dealt with if people would talk about it when it happens. Well, to them. I recommend picking We have to wrap it up. I recommend picking up, Doug Stanhope's autobiography. I think it came out 10 years ago. He talks about his mother and sh helping to shuffle off her mortal coil. Oh, that one was just a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. He talks about helping his mother, uh, assisting her suicide. And I went, this guy, I mean, it's I love And you know what? You know what's great about that book is, you know, there's an audio book as well. And the audio book is like a hybrid between Doug reading the book and doing stand up at the same time. Right. It's really great. But before you go, I, 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 and I apologize uh, for keeping people waiting. When we were on the green room, you told me about Doug Stanhope. Besides being like one of the greatest comics ever. Which I firmly I, I believe that you I believe you the best in the world. He of a certain generation created the template upon which everybody else now is doing business as a comedian. Isn't, isn't that true? Yeah, he did. He, before it was a thing, he was doing it. He basically turned his career into, you know, an indie band, you know, indie bands would have their following and they would come and see them no matter when they were playing in their town and they would buy all their merch and 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 they call each other. They, you know, uh, oh, I live in San Diego. You live in Ohio. I'm coming to see a Stanhope show. Uh, can I crash at your place? And his fan base is so loyal and so like great. the dead, they, like like the Grateful Dead. Yes. Yes. And 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 he did that all even before the Internet, just by just playing. But but very early on, when the rest of us were playing comedy clubs, he was like, but this. And he started booking his own little venues and bringing his own crowd to it. Yeah. And they've stayed with him the whole time. In fairness, he just keeps getting better and better. Right. And, right. you know. The crowd is never disappointed when they see him. It's not, it's not right. like, oh, he's doing that again. You know, it's, right. it's always something new and ballsy. And and yeah, he was he definitely created a template that everybody wishes they they were. Right. Uh, he didn't do it before the Internet. He did it with the Internet. We're talking about. He actually it actually was going on before the Internet. Really? It's just 
yeah, just the strength of fans going, he's in town, let's go. And, you know, connecting with each other and stuff. Okay. The impact it up, of course. But, you know, it wasn't like a Dane Cook thing where it all happened because of the internet. He had already been laying the groundwork. Right. We didn't have time to talk about Chris D'Elia, the genius, the comedy stylings of Chris D'Elia. You have to come back and talk to me about <laughs> Chris is your Speaking of fucking kids. Uh, <laughs> we have to wrap it up. Uh, uh, Want to come back next week? Let, let's, <laughs> let's sell tickets for your show. All right, sure. I, I, I want to spend every day with you, David. Okay. Oh. Paul Provenza, uh, stay with me. Uh, how do people follow you? Give out your, your ID. My Twitter is at Paul Provenza. Um, there's also an at Aristocrats film, which is just a, a constant stream of some of the most vile things I can find on Twitter. <laughs> how many times have you been kicked off Facebook? I was kicked off a number of times, yeah. <laughs> Uh, sometimes like, I, I would get kicked off of my profile photos. I know. Which were often medical oddities. I know. You know? We should do a, 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 a we should. OK, we got <laughs> I don't do, I, I'm done with Facebook. I've been been off it for like five years now, and I'm so glad. Good. Uh, thank you, Paul Prevenza. I love you uh, next week. Thank you, Paul. Love you, brother. Bye. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. <laughs>